You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. I don't know how you are, but sometimes, man, many times we're singing those songs. I am singing way above my level of obedience. I will tell you that right now. Because <laughs> when it says all we want is you, my heart is so far from that sometimes. Wow, that's why we gather, church. We need to be reminded of the greatness of God, that. that he is really all we need. Yeah. I, it's, I, I just can't explain to you how... how Man, how pumped I am when I get to gather with you all. I, this last year even has nothing to do with the Psalms, but just even reading through the epistles. Church, I, I, you may not, sometimes you're wondering when you're in here, I know you know, the, the singing and the preaching, but I want to tell you, one of the greatest things we do every week is build up the body of believers. Amen. Encourage one another. Just so you know, your attendance, your faces, your being here is a big encouragement. Don't ever minimize what God is doing through you when you show up on a Sunday morning. If you read the Apostle Paul, one of the things he continually did was to build up and lift up the saints because this world will beat you down. And so what I love about going through even the Psalms over the, this summer, I love that because the Psalms is always this way. I love that. As Marcus, I think, said a year ago or maybe a couple of times summers ago when we were going through the Psalms, I, most of the Psalms, like we get a personal David wrote 73 of them. God used him to write 73 of them. It's almost like we get to read David's personal diary a lot of times and just his frustrations and his pains and his hurts and his fears. And we get to have a bird's eye view of it. And I love how God allows us to bring all that to him through the Psalms. And so um, this morning we are kicking off our summer in the Psalms, our studying in the Psalms together. And last summer we began a 15 year journey. And so um, uh, if the Lord tarries, for the next 15 summers, we're going to tackle all 150 psalms, and I love it. So, um, uh, um, quite a volume it'll be after after 15. So, hopefully, I'm, I'm still breathing, uh, but or if the Lord has come back uh, to be able to get that stu- those study notes. But uh, we did Psalm 1 through 10 last summer. This summer, we're going to do Psalm 11 through 20. And so, before I before we jump into Psalm 11 today. Um, I want to remind us of some, some truths, some overviews of, of the Psalms. We talked about these last summer, but since we're kicking, we're launching, redoing this, and maybe you weren't here for our summer of the Psalms last, uh, last summer, I want to just remind you of some five facts about Psalm before we dig into Psalm 11 today. Uh, one is this, Psalm is God's word. Um, the Psalms are God-breathed. They're the words of God that teach us and instruct us about life. Um, some scholars believe Psalms to be the summation of the Old Testament, if not the whole Bible. Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, just so you're aware of that. Psalms is about Jesus. Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44 that Jesus says the Psalms are about him. One author said of Psalms that it is the place in scripture where you get the full emotions in Jesus. I believe that. I think the older I'm getting, the more I go to the Psalms for just hope and encouragement. Third, another fact, Psalms is the songbook of Israel, Jesus and us. The word Psalm comes from the Greek word Psalmos, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Mizmor, and both words meaning a a song accompanied by musical instruments, particularly a harp. Um, And so most of the Psalms were written for Israel's temple worship, 
and it is a songbook of praise and poetry. Um, another fact about Psalms, it's concerned both for the individual and for the body of Christ as a whole. Many Psalms will use singular terms like Psalm 25, one, where the writer says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Uh, we know David is talking about his own heart, but also as the king of Israel. Um, so we also know that he's talking about the heart of his people. Psalms reminds us that Jesus is after our heart, not only as individuals, but as the church, as a body of believers. And then also the, um, Psalms is about a king and his kingdom, David and Jesus. As I said earlier, 73 of the Psalms named David as their author, who is the king of Israel. And many times he's pointing to a greater king. His name is Jesus. And so those are some facts, but also an overview of the Bible. It's really book, broken up into five books, um, five books of Psalms. The first 41 books, uh, book one, book one, actually the first 41 Psalms, I should say, it's, it talks about the king's confidence in God's care. Book two, um, so, so for four summers, we're gonna be talking about the, the, the king's confidence in God's care. Then we're in book two, it talks about the king's commitments to God's kingdom in Psalms 42 through 72. In book three, it's the king's crisis over God's promises, Psalm 73 to so Psalm 89. Book four, the king's comfort in God's faithfulness, Psalm 90 through 106. And then book five, the king's celebration of God's salvation in Psalm 107 through 150. And so that is just an overview and some facts about the Psalms as we jump back in to the Psalms this summer. And again, I'm looking forward, uh, not only for myself, but our church to go through the Psalms. I love the Psalms. I pray there'll be an encouragement to you this summer over the next several weeks. So let's jump into, your, into the word. So if you've got your Bible, if you've got your electronic device, we're gonna jump right into Psalm 11. Um, only seven verses, but there's a lot in these seven verses. The word of God says, starting in verse one, I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, escape to the mountain like a bird? For look, the wicked, the wicked string bows, they put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch, his gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's transforming, it's eternal. It's the only thing that can change a heart. We pray Jesus, you'll use your word today to change hearts. We all walked in this room with different hurts, anxieties, fears, things we've been talking about the last several weeks, depression, worries, doubts. We pray God, whatever is going on in the hearts of not only your children today, but those who don't know you yet, we pray your word will speak into their lives today. We need your word. We love your word. Jesus, please transform us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're not sure when David wrote this psalm. Uh, many of the psalms we don't know sometimes when he wrote. Um, we do know that there were moments in David's life when he did flee when his life was in danger, but we don't, um, we don't see it in this moment actually. And usually when David would flee, he would not flee to the mountains. The mountains would not have been a safe place for David. He would usually flee to the wilderness. And being in Israel a few years ago, having the opportunity to go twice, I can tell you um, uh, a lot of caves in the wilderness. So as you read the Psalms, David hid in the caves a lot. And so um, they were safer places in the mountains. So we know he wasn't physically running away. Um, 
we believe that we're to read this psalm if, in studying this psalm. It's to be read more broadly as a temptation, I believe, to abandon the place God has appointed you in your life. For David, he had been appointed, anointed as the king of Israel. And so his friends are basically saying, David, flee, get out of here. But David had been appointed there. And so this wasn't a time to flee. We, we as believers today have been appointed. The Bible says in Matthew chapter five, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, we've been appointed to be salt of the earth light of the world. And so we have an obligation not to flee. And we're going to talk about that in this text. We should also note that in Psalm 11, you probably noticed with the, when the Am, uh, Eric and Amber read from Psalm 11 earlier, and I just read it again here, you see the terms righteous and wicked a lot. And I think it's good to define those before we jump in to the heart of this text, because we can read those sometimes. And I think the danger in the church always is that we can become very self-righteous. Um, that, that we can look on others um, and we forget that, by the way, we were all in the camp of the wicked at one time. Say that. All of us, every one of us. And so I think it's good to define terms what righteous is, what wicked is. Um, and in our context and not taking out of context what David is writing about in the Old Testament. First is this. I'm going to give you several scriptures on the screen. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, the apostle Paul, write, Paul writes, there is no one righteous, not even one. It goes on to say, there's, 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 we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we need to know that church right now, there's none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah in the Old Testament in six, chapter 64 and verse six says, all of us have become like something unclean and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. Some translations like a filthy rag. Romans two and verses five and six, Paul says, because of your hardened and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is re revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Bottom line is this church, everyone born since the fall of Adam and Eve have a sin nature. We are all unrighteous. Amen. Every one of us, we are all wicked, the Bible declares. That's a great Sunday morning message right there, isn't it? We are all wicked. So how does someone become righteous? How, how do we go from the wicked to the righteous that David is talking about here in Psalm 11? Because Jesus had not even come yet. They were looking to a future king. Well, the same is true in the Old Testament, the same as New Testament. The difference is we get to look at Jesus now in the Old Testament, though they were looking forward to Jesus. And so in Romans 4, Paul talks about this. The apostle Paul talks about it. What is David talking about when he's talking about the righteous? What was Abraham talking about when he talked about the righteous in the Old Testament? And it says in Romans 4, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So in the Old Testament saints, it was still by faith. Faith in the one true and living God. We on the other side of Jesus get to look to Jesus and have our faith in the one they were looking forward to. The same God who came in the person, the flesh of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter three and verse five says he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, because we have no righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Church, if you know Jesus, if you have, have put your faith and trust in him, he says he has given you peace because of the righteousness he has given to you. Amen. That is a great truth. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in all scripture, he made the one who, Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. Church, listen, myself, if you know Jesus, I have no righteousness in of myself. You have no righteousness in of yourself. The only righteousness we have, if you know him, it's because he, Jesus, has imputed his righteousness to us. That is a great truth. So when we stand here today and read about the righteous and the wicked, please know that we all were in the camp of the wicked at one time. For me, June 23rd, 1988, for the first 24 years of my life, I was following the path of Todd Slagle, following the path of the wicked. Now, if you'd asked me, man, I was counting on my righteous deeds to get me to heaven, but the scriptures made it very clear, Todd, you have no righteous deeds. It's only in Jesus. I hope you have a time you can look back in your life. You don't have to have a date or anything like that, but there should be a time in your life. Has there been a time, whether you're here or watching online, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you been declared righteous through Christ? Or are you still following your own path, your own rules, your own way? You don't want to yield and submit to the one true God. If that is the case, then this scripture talks about you today as well just as it did me for the first 24 years of my life, we are still, you are still in the camp of the wicked. And that's a bad place to be. And so as you look at Psalm 11 this morning, I want us to consider three questions that come from this text today. The first is this, what can the righteous do? A second question I want us to look at, where should the righteous look in Psalm 11 verses four through six? And the third question I think we need to ask ourselves is where will the righteous be? in Psalm 11 and verse seven. So the first question we should ask ourselves in this Psalm is, is what can the righteous do? David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you, and by the way, when he said, how can you say to me? That means his friends are speaking into his life. Escape to the mountains like a bird. For look, the wicked string bows. They put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous to do? So David begins this Psalm from the get-go by telling us, what can the righteous do? take refuge in the Lord. That's the very first thing David says. David declares his confidence in God while the world seems to be falling apart around him. It is obvious from David's response that his friends looked around in fear and they tell him, get out of here. It's crumbling. This world is in bad shape, yet David is choosing to take refuge in God. His friends were telling him, escape to the mountains like a bird. I think the translation of the ESV said, flee, fly like a bird. Get out of here, like quickly. The word escape or flee in other translations is plural. And so this advice is not just to David. This advice is being given to all of the righteous in Israel, those who are following Yahweh, the one true God. But David would not surrender to unbelief as we see in this text. He would not deny God by giving in to panic and to fear. Matter of fact, that, actually that would have been an easy decision for David. Um, and I, I think we read this sometimes and we, we, we forget who David's friends were. These were not bad friends. Read David's life. He had mighty men of valor, the Bible says, around him. These were not weak-minded men around David giving him this advice. These were men who had fought battles and were strong but yet they were in panic and fear of what was going on around him. And he said, David, get out of here. But David would not listen to the counsel of his friends in this moment. I love how the text says that they're like the wicked who string bows and, and the key is the upright in heart. They're like assassins, evil men that are hiding in the shadows, ready to strike when God's people can't see it coming. Isn't that just like, isn't that like, just like Satan? It's not usually in your face. It's, it's when you don't expect it. 
Amen. The Bible says Paul talks about the schemes of the devil. Nothing's new here, church. There's always been those where there's treachery. And in this context, treachery was destroying the very structures of society. We don't know what really, again, was going on, but something was going on here. David's friends concluded that there is nothing left to do but throw in the towel, concede defeat. When they asked the question, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that question is basically saying, we can do nothing. It's gone. We need to run because the, clearly the foundations are being destroyed here. Many believers today, I believe, are asking the same fearful question as David's anxious, anxious friends did 3,000 years ago today or in this moment. I think we ask the question sometimes when the foundations are being destroyed, what do the righteous do? What does the church do? What do I as a follower of Jesus Christ do? The word foundations in this context is a metaphor for social order. The word destroy describes the turbulent upheaval of the moral values and civil order of their day. And again, we don't know what those values and civil order was going on, but something was going on that was destroying those foundations in David's time. And society, society, our society, David's society, the nation of Israel was built on truth. And when that truth is questioned or denied, the foundations shake, do they not church? Yes. For example, consider these recent headlines. In just the past few months in our country right here alone, Oregon, adopts policy to require feminine products in boys' bathrooms in public schools. Senate Democrats set vote today on bill that would codify Roe v. Wade as the law of the land. Biden administration celebrates the first openly LGBTQ person to serve as the White House press secretary. Supreme Court to hear argument on whether it's unconstitutional for a high school football coach to pray on the 50-yard line after a game. When the foundations are destroyed, church, what can the righteous do? By the way, just as the foundations were being shaken then, they are being shaken now. Nothing is new. I think sometimes we look and think, man, it's, this is something new, but the Bible says there's no new thing under the sun. It's always been going on. Christians are tempted, I believe, to give in to fear, and I think Psalm 11 is David's answer to the panic that gripped his friends. I believe Psalm 11 is an answer to us who grip, who when fear grips our hearts that I will take refuge in the Lord. By the way, church, God is never in panic mode. Say that. Those headlines I just read, God is not up in heaven wringing his hands thinking, what am I going to do? What are my people going to do? He's always in control. He's never in panic. David's response was to take refuge in God and keep, keep doing what is right. And this needs to be our, our, our attitude today 3,000 years later. These friends, these advisors of David, they say, I can't live in this culture, David. I got to get out of here. They're saying run. But David says the God, they actually are saying the godly David, the righteous, we're helpless. David is saying, man, it's worth it. Stay in the fight. Stay trust in the Lord. And by the way, this is nothing new. This is a timeless temptation to run, to escape. I mean, come on, church. If we were being honest here, aren't there moments in your life you just want to escape? And by the way, we should be praying often, Jesus, please come quickly. That should be our prayer. But if he doesn't come quickly, we still have a job to do. Amen. We don't run. We don't run. That's what the evil one wants us to do. But that, that this temptation is nothing new. Read the life of Jesus Christ in the, in the gospels. His own friends, his disciples on multiple occasions, Jesus, get out of here. 
One of the examples is when Jesus is about to go to Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11, his disciples say to him, just now, Jesus, the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again. They're basically saying, Jesus, you are crazy for going back to Bethany. Don't go there. But if Jesus wouldn't have went there, we wouldn't have the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Another example, Peter Peter says, tells Jesus, when Jesus says about his death, his burial and his resurrection, he tells him, I'm gonna be crucified. Peter says to him, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. I mean, basically Peter's saying, I'm ready to take on every Pharisee, every Sadducee and all the Roman empire. No one is touching you, Jesus. Aren't you glad Jesus did not give him the temptation to run and flee? If he would have ran and fled, we would not have a savior. Say that. He had to stay the course. Why? He trusted God. Why didn't he run? He knew, and by the way, we don't know what our future looks like. Jesus knew what his future looked like. And he still stayed. He didn't run. And by the way, even in that society, the foundations were being destroyed. I mean, Israel was under the Roman Empire. Those who follow Christ today, I believe, hear the same counsel, both in and out of the church, guys. Um, we're told to abandon the work God has given us because the situation seems hopeless. Um, The foundations are destroyed sometimes, even those in the church say. We're we're told you can't hold back the tide. Just yield to the sexual revolution. Yield to whatever the next thing is on the horizon that is absolutely against the word of God. Give in. But God's word, by the way, church, is still relevant today. Today. By the way, this world has never seen God's word as relevant, but we must see his word as relevant. Because here's the reality, guys. Sin has been in the world since the Garden of Eden. Always. Thus, the world we live in has always considered God's word to be contrary to what the world wants. It was evil in David's day, this world. It was evil in Christ's day. Here's a shocker. The world was wicked in the 1950s. You'll hear sometimes say, boy, I sure wish we could go back. Go back to what? It's always been wicked. Did we not have slavery in our country at one time? Jim Crow laws? Civil war? Uh, Infant mortality? Uh, My family and I, one of the things I like to do with my dad every year is, Laura and I, we go visit my folks up in Maryville and we love to, Memorial Day, we love to visit gravesides and Go to some of those old grave sites and see the number of babies, tombstones, infant mortality rates incredibly high back then. This world's always been cruel. It's always been that way. There's never go back to a better time. It's always been a bad time. They crucified our savior church. And so I think we need to know that in God's sovereignty, He appoints us, church, to be born in this place and time to serve him here and now, just like he did, David, when his friends were saying, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I would say, when we are tempted to abandon the truth of his word, we're told, we're we're, we're tempted to give in to whatever the next thing is coming up on the agenda and just say, just yield to it, give in. Man, we, we have to resist that temptation and to do what Jesus said before he went back to heaven to be with his father when he said, I have, given, I have made you disciples to reach the nations for me. 
and that includes our society here. We've been, so when, when we are tempted, tempted, when the, what, can the, what can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? We must take refuge in the Lord. I love how Dana Ortland says it in his book, Gentle and Lowly. When the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us, solidarity. Our Savior is with us in that moment. And so what should the righteous do when the foundation are destroyed? Take refuge in the Lord, trust in him. Second question we should look at is where should the righteous look? In verses four through six, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch, his gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals on and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be a portion in their cup. As David's friends were gripped with fear that the foundations were being destroyed, destroyed, David chooses to reject this counsel by trusting in the Lord. David's friends had made a serious mistake. They had forgotten who God was. David did not. By the way, church, when we have friends come to us, we need to be that friend who says, by the way, God is still on the throne. He's still in control. He has not moved. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 90. Moses penning this psalm says, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world from eternity to eternity, you are God. Where should the righteous look? To God. David tells us the righteous should look to God. In verses four through seven, we see the name Lord, all caps. That refers to the personal name of God, Yahweh. And so David is ascribing, he is, he is talking about Yahweh, the personal name of God in, these, in, these, in the rest of these, this psalm. And the first thing we see in this, these psalms, verses four through six, when where should the righteous look? First, David affirms that God rules. We see in verse, uh, the first part of verse four, he is sovereign king over heaven and earth. The Lord is in his holy temple. When we see the word temple, we automatically think of Solomon's temple, but we know that can't be what he's talking about because Solomon's temple had not yet been built. So we know it wasn't the temple. What we can think, I think, make the assumption though is, is that he's talking about the throne room where, where God is seated. Sometimes in the Old Testament, we wonder, did they, did they have a real view of heaven? And we don't, they didn't have a full view like we get in the New Testament, but they knew God was seated in the heavenlies. They, David knew where he was. No matter what is happening on earth, David is saying God is in control. When it says the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord, his throne is in heaven. David is saying, God, I know where you're at and I know you've got your hand on this. When the foundations seem to be shaking, God is not frightened. Church, know this, nothing happens in heaven, on earth, in hell that God is not aware of. He's aware of everything. That is comforting church. That should give us, quite frankly, confidence to get out of bed every morning. Amen. If not, we might as well just put the cover over our head and just stay there. No, seriously. It's, even, when we get, even when we go about our day, it's faith. We are trusting God. You are in control. I love, we see in the second part of verse four, that the Lord carefully watches and examines everyone. The word gaze means that God is paying attention. I know sometimes that can be a fearful thing. God, I wish you wouldn't pay attention to me right now. Um, but, I, but it is confidence to know that there's nothing Todd Slagel does that he's not aware of. And I take confidence in that. No matter what happens to me, no matter whatever happens to us, God has his eye on us. I love that. 
I, I think of when I was a dad and now that I'm a grandpa, I, we were at my uh, uh, son, one of our daughters and her husband, Andrew and Hannah's house for Memorial Day. And, and, and you know, with little ones, I'm, you know, as a dad, I remember this moment, but now that you're even little ones again, you know, they're always kind of looking to see if somebody's watching because they're about to get into something. You know, they're just, okay. And sometimes they're doing it anyway and they're thinking, well, grandpa's not looking right now or dad's not looking, but you know, we are looking. They just don't know we're looking. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's just like God. We may wonder sometimes if he's not looking. We can look at our society and wonder, God, are you looking? He's looking. He's examining. He does have his eyes on us. I think of a ball game and, you know, you see those pictures, the kids sometimes are looking to see if their dad's out there. And sometimes they may ask questions. They may wonder if dad was maybe on his phone or whatever. And they, they're wondering, did he really even see me? But the dad all the time is looking at, but maybe their child just doesn't know it. I love what Proverbs 15, three says, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, observing the wicked and the good. Church, know this, that all hearts are open before Christ. Jesus said, in John chapter two, because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for what does it say about Jesus? For he himself knew what was in man. Jesus has his eyes on everything, on us. From his throne, God judges, according to, these text, according to this text, the evil and the good. The righteous, by the way, church, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we are not exempt from the judgment of God. We will all stand before him one day. Now, our, our judgment before him will be different than the, un, the unrighteous, the wicked. But we will, be, we will be judged according to our works on what we did as followers of Jesus Christ. He is examining. But here's the beautiful thing. He's refining us. Like, like in the context of this, when it says he's examining us, he's examining the righteous, it's the term examines refers to the process of proving or a saying precious metal. He's putting us through the fire to make us more like him. I love how James describes this. James 1, where he says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. So when our foundations are being attacked, crumbled, just know this church, he's producing endurance in us. What will you do church? What will you do follower of me? But God also examines the wicked and we cannot miss this church. This is, this is if you stand here today, if you're watching online and you don't know Jesus Christ, don't miss what he is, David is describing here. I would say this to you church, when is the last time you truly gave God praise for having mercy on your soul? Because when I read this text, it is a fearful thing. Fearful. I know Jesus, and it's when I was reading it throughout this week, it's fearful. Because he says that if God loves that which is good, beautiful, and pure, it says how much more does he hate those who are not beautiful, pure, and good? The Bible says he hates those who love violence. Listen, church, I think when we read that sometimes in our ears and we wonder, man, God is being unfair, but I would say this just as we would expect justice for someone who commits a horrible act in our society, how much more does God have the right to do justice for what we have done to him? We expect justice in our society when someone walks into a school and kills children, when they go into a hospital and kill people. Don't we expect justice? God, David is saying, God, you will carry out justice one day and it will not be good. 
but it will be just, it will be a right justice. Church, please hear this. This text, God's judgment is not fantasy or fiction. How do we know that? Because David describes something that's already happened in the past. It says he rained down fire and sulfur when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This past week, what a beautiful thing, seeing a double rainbow in the sky. Amazing. What a great reminder. God once destroyed this nation, this, this world by what? Flood, water. Next time it will not be by water. There will be no rainbows. It will be by fire. Second Peter says this in chapter three, verse seven, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Guys, this is a prophetic text. David is looking at a future event that's coming. Church, a future event is coming when he will destroy everything. David continues by letting us know that God's judgment also includes let a scorching wind be a portion in their cup. When we see the word cup, we can go back, we can look to even what Jesus described when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Normally when we see the word cup, it literally means a lot of times the wrath of God. And we know that God poured his wrath in that cup on Jesus for us, for us. So where should the righteous look? They should look to the one seated on the throne. I love how Revelation chapter four says that the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. So church, when the foundations are being destroyed, we take refuge in God and we look to the one who's seated on the throne. He is still seated. He's got this. And finally, where will the righteous be? And David ends this Psalm with, I love this verse, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. As the foundations are destroyed all around this church, we must remember that those who trust in him, we will see his face one day. Is that amazing? Yeah. I, I, I think it is. I, I, I can't even imagine what that moment's gonna be like. I love how Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14, some of his last moments with them. He's about to go be arrested, be tried, be beaten, be crucified. And he says this to him, I will come again. I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So where Jesus is now, David is prophesying right here. One day, David said, I will see his face. Church, if you know him, you will see his face. What a face it will be. We must remember this world is no friend of grace. No friend of grace. I'm glad God is. I'm glad for his mercy. So in the midst of social upheaval church, just like it was 3000 years ago, just like it is today, God's people, we must take refuge in him. Don't resist the temptation to flee, to flee, to run. As Pastor Bob has said many times, stay in the game. When opposition comes, close friends around us may weaken and cause us to panic. But I would say church, remember this, God is sovereign. We can trust him, he's seated in heaven. And by the way, we one day will see his face. So where will the righteous be? David tells us that the upright will see his face. And I love how Revelation 21 says it. Then I saw a new heaven, and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things, the previous things have passed away. Church, when the foundations are being destroyed, remember this, those who trust in the Lord will see his face. The foundations, by the way, the foundations that are being destroyed, they will be restored. It will all be made right. And then all injustice will be made just. So even in this life, and sometimes we don't see justice prevail, know this church, God will one day make everything just, everything. Nothing's out of his control. And so I end with this, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Trust in the Lord. I know sometimes it seems bleak. Headline after headline, advertisement after advertisement, trying to get us off to question God's authority and his rule and his word and our purpose here. But church, he's still seated on the throne. Yes, he, is. he still rules over all. And we can take refuge in that. Just as David did 3,000 years ago when the foundations were being destroyed, we in 2022 can take refuge in the Lord when our foundations are being destroyed because he, God, can be trusted. He is our refuge. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for Psalm 11. I, thank you for inspiring David to the Holy Spirit to pen this Psalm for us to read in the year 2022. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Just the foundations were being shaken back then. They're being shaken now. They've always, they've always been, they've always been shaken. There's never been a time since the fall of Adam and Eve where the foundations haven't been shaken. So God, may we take refuge in you, knowing that you're seated on the throne. You examine everyone. There's nothing out of your view. You got this. We may, it may look sometimes like you don't have it. We can know through your word, you have it. You got it. And so I pray as a church that when we're tempted to run, we're tempted to escape, we're tempted to, I think, look back on times that really never were. May we remember you are our refuge and we can trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.